On this Mother's Day, we are continuing on in a, a series that we've been in. We've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, Ecclesiastes is an interesting reflection, either written by Solomon, King Solomon, David's son, or by someone who wanted us to think it was Solomon writing. Either way, we'll read it as if Solomon wrote it. And Solomon, near the end of his life, is reflecting back on all, of, all that he's experienced and all of his deep thinking. He was wise. He was a philosopher. And he's realizing that all of life has been coming up against these three major challenges. Um, the first major challenge that, that, uh, that causes meaning in life to be difficult is time. Time is so big, it's so long, and we're so small. Your life is a blip on the giant timeline of planet Earth. And, you know, in a couple generations, you will be forgotten. So he wrestles with that. The second thing that he wrestles with is during the time that we have, life seems kind of chaotic. It seems kind of random. The, the good people struggle, the, the bad people thrive. We're not really sure how all of that works. It seems like there's not a clear system for how the universe is functioning. And, uh, you know, it, it, it rains when you need it to be dry, and it's dry when you need it to be rain, rainy. So there's chaos, and he's grappling with that, and that makes life feel difficult, almost meaningless. And the third thing that he faces throughout the book that challenges his sense of meaning in life is death. Happy Mother's Day! Because <laughs> we're going to talk about death today. His, uh, his longest reflection on death comes in chapter 9, so I'm going to read it to you. Uh, this is Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 10. He's been thinking about all sorts of things, and he starts, So I reflected on all this, attempting to clear it all up. I concluded that the righteous and the wise, as well as their works, are in the hand of God. Whether a person will be loved or hated, no one knows what lies ahead. Everyone shares the same fate. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the ceremonially clean and unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. What happens to the good person also happens to the sinner. What happens to those who make vows also happens to those who are afraid to make vows. This is the unfortunate fact about everything that happens on earth. The same fate awaits everyone. In addition to this, the hearts of all people are full of evil. And there is folly in their hearts during their lives. Then they die. But whoever is among the living has hope. A live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them disappears. What they loved as well as what they hated and envied perished long ago, and they no longer have a part in anything that happens on earth. Go, eat your food with joy and drink your wine with a happy heart because God has already approved your works. Let your clothes always be white and do not spare precious ointment on your head. Enjoy life with your beloved wife during all the days of your fleeting life that God has given you on earth during all your fleeting days. For that is your reward in life and in your burdensome work on earth. Whatever you find to do with your hands, 
do it with all your might, because there is neither work nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom in the grave, the place where you will eventually go. The word of the Lord. Father, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, whenever we come face to face with death, especially the death of a, uh, someone beloved to us, we are um, aware in that moment that this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem like the way it's supposed to be. Jesus, I take great hope in the way you wept outside of Lazarus' grave before you raised him from the dead. Lord, you knew this wasn't the way it's supposed to be, and yet it's the way it is. And so on this Mother's Day, Lord, would you help us to understand how to live as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I've been nervously uh, chattering with people about how the schedule of Ecclesiastes worked out. And, and you know, I kind of lined out Ecclesiastes before we started and, and had this all planned out to do a, a reflection on death on May 14th. And it was only later that I realized that that was Mother's Day. And, uh, and you know, I didn't change my plan. And so I've been nervously telling people, oh, we're talking about death and Mother's Day. And, and a mom in the church just came up to me who I've been nervously talking to this about and said, you know, being a mom is a form of death. You die to yourself regularly. I think she's right. I think we take into our, you know, you moms, you, you understand in your very bodies how to live in the death of Christ, how to complete the sufferings of Christ as you give yourselves away. Uh, every single mom that I know literally has to power through pain, your body breaking down, and it doesn't matter. Uh, as you are caring for your families. So thank you for that. Um, one of the great sort of uh, philosophical reflections on death from my childhood comes in the great Bill Murray movie, What About Bob? So let's, let's bring it up for a minute and talk about What About Bob? Uh, this movie, if I, I thought it was hilarious as a kid, and once I had been in a helping profession, you know, a pastor for a number of years, I saw it again, and it was totally traumatic to me. You know, this guy, he, this, this neurotic guy, Bill Murray, goes and sees a psychotherapist and, and drives this other man insane by the end of the movie, and, and I'm like, this is, a, this is terrible. Um, it's very painful to watch, but so, you know, Bob, he's a man who's nearly paralyzed by all sorts of anxieties. He signs on with Dr. Leo Marvin, and Dr. Marvin quickly diagnoses Bob with a multiphobic personality disorder, gives him a copy of his newest book, and leaves for vacation. And Bob follows him onto vacation and finds him at Lake Winnipesaukee, and, uh, and Bob keeps following him around in circumstances go awry and eventually in a rainstorm Bob is stuck at Dr. Marvin's house overnight and and the only guest bed is in Dr. Marvin's son Sigmund's room uh, and uh, and so there they are you know 
Bill Murray and, and, and Siggy, uh, you know, in the room. And Bob is, you know, multiphobic. Sigmund is singular in his phobia. You know, Bob has all of these things he's afraid of. Siggy says, what do you, you know, you are going to die. I am going to die. Much later than you, of course, but I'm going. And so Sigmund lays out his fear of death, and it brings it down for a minute. And then Bob starts talking about his fear of, you know, Tourette's syndrome. And their fears help balance each other out, and they kind of, you know, lift each other up. Bob's not quite free yet, uh, so Dr. Marvin finally decides that the only way to cure Bob is to murder him. Happy Mother's Day. And... Um, <laughs> And in that moment, Bob has a psychological breakthrough. You know, he's tied up and, you know, there's a ticking time bomb, literally. And, and uh, he's there and he says, if I don't untangle all of my knots, I'm going to die. And so, you know, Bob finally gets out of the rope. Uh, he's cured of all of his phobias. He writes a book about death therapy, which becomes a bestseller. He drives Leo into a rage-induced coma. He marries Leo's sister, and the credits roll. <laughs> okay, maybe it's not highbrow philosophy. In fact, um, the breakthrough that Bob has at, would fall apart in the light of Ecclesiastes. Bob's revelation is, if I don't untangle my knots, I'm going to die. The teacher of Ecclesiastes says, it doesn't matter whether you untangle your knots or not. You're going to die. That's his wisdom. Death is one of these great problems that Ecclesiastes faces. Time and chaos are the other two, but they all come together in death. Death is the only thing that's not chaotic in the book. And it comes up again and again. Uh, chapter 2 laments that the wise and foolish share the same fate. Chapter 3 zooms out and discovers that people and animals share the same fate. Chapter 6 compares a rich workaholic who dies to a stillborn child. Chapter 8 recognizes that no one has the power to control the day of his, of his death. Death is just coming for everyone. That's what the book acknowledges. The only time he changes his tune about death is in chapter 7, where he says death is way better than getting tangled up with a woman who's like a hunter's snare. Happy Mother's Day, seriously. I mean, come on. <clears throat> All right. All that builds up to the chapter that I just read, which carries the same themes the long shadow that death casts over our lives, but it also offers us some guidance, and I think we can benefit from this. So I'm going to look at this guidance just in three parts, what we know about death, what we know about life, and what we do with that, all right? Pretty simple. What we know about death. I've already said it, but here it is. It's coming for everyone. It's coming for everyone. It is the constant reality that we live with. You can either live with it repressed and try to go on with your life or become obsessed with it and overcome by it. It's coming for every living thing. And philosophers and scientists throughout the ages, doctors, have tried to understand how our unique awareness of our death shapes us as people. All animals seem to have a sense of self-preservation, right? The, you know, they'll run away from danger or fight to defend themselves or, or try to get food, right? But humans, in the words of uh, the cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker, who I'm going to refer to a bit today, are 
hyper-anxious about our death. And that's what makes us the superior species. Isn't that interesting? In his, in his understanding, the fact that we are so aware of death uh, makes us the species that thinks a lot more and goes a lot further to be safe, to preserve ourselves, to care for one another. Even though in every other way, if you just look at a human being compared to almost any animal, we're just much more vulnerable than they are. I mean, like we shouldn't survive. You know, a human baby, we've got some beautiful babies here. And you can't, you couldn't just leave your baby outside for a couple of days. Like that, that won't work, right? But so, all right, that's what we know uh, that is coming for everyone. We also know we don't know when it's coming, but God does. doesn't matter how powerful we are. We can't control the day of our death. So the teacher invites us to trust God with the day of our death. We can live with joyful abandon, free of fear, if we grip the rope of God's sovereign control over our very lives. So it's coming for all of us. We don't know when it's coming. And third, we all deserve it. It's found in verse 3. We all deserve it. Throughout Ecclesiastes, the teacher reflects on the seemingly random nature of things, the evil sometimes get what the righteous deserve and vice versa. But here he tips his hand and says, but in reality, we all deserve death. Death is certain because Solomon can return in his mind to Eden and see that death is a just penalty. Everyone, everyone is trying to live outside of the grace of God, just like Adam and Eve did. They wanted something in the garden to be earned, not to be given. I think that's the fall. That's what we do. And, and, and maybe you figured it out, but I haven't figured out how to live my life not trying to earn it, not trying to earn my well-being. That death is not merely awaiting those who reject the giver of life. It's a lived reality, so much so that the early Christians would describe Jesus as bringing everyone, you know, like even living people from death to life. It's a lived reality. All right, that's what we know about death. Well, what do we know about life? It's kind of simple what he says here. He says, life is better than death. I know you guys weren't expecting these kinds of, you know, revelations today, but life is better than death. A living dog is better than a dead lion. I'd, you know, I'd say a living dog is better than a living lion too, but that's, you know, that's just me. Why? Uh, Because the living, he says, know that we will die. This is interesting. Now that sounds kind of bad, but he's actually saying that our awareness of our death is an awareness that we still have time that there's still days and relationship and interactions in front of us. The living can live in light of their death. Our attitude and choices are impacted by the knowledge of coming death. And the dead don't have that freedom anymore. The biblical wisdom throughout scripture is to make the most of the life we've been given. Everything for the dead is in the past. There's no more opportunity to 
earn rewards, as Ecclesiastes says. They no longer have a part in anything that happens on earth. And the living, we're part of it. We're part of this big story. So the teacher and Ernest Becker, who writes this book, say the knowledge of our death is the key to a good life. This, uh, this guy, Ernest Becker, he, he served in the army. He, uh, he was part of the troops that liberated concentration camps. I mean, he came face to face with death in the most gruesome and horrific way. It's a really important book. It won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, and he, what he does in that book is he pulls together scientific and philosophical and sociological and religious and poetic reflections on death. And he brings them all together to help us understand how is our hyper-anxiousness about death driving our lives. And he comes up with one word that he summarizes how human beings live. He calls it heroism. We are the only species, he says, no, Lassie may disagree, but we're the only species who have this idea of the heroic, giving your life away for other beings. And we celebrate heroic stories. Heroism is our response to our awareness of death. It's the way that we deny death, he says. But we still have to cope with it. And, and he pulls together all these different thinkers saying, here's how people cope with death. And he summarizes those into two big camps. All right. And the, the titles of these two camps are a little bit misleading because he likes the second one. Okay. The first way he says we cope with death is, is the healthy minded way. <laughs> Again, it's a little misleading because he thinks the other one's better, but healthy minded. This group says the awareness and fear of death is unnatural. They say, look at the youngest kids, they don't know about death. You know, that we're not supposed to know it. And, and then we, you know, what society does is we use the knowledge of death to repress people, to make them act and live a certain way. The concept is put on people and, you know, it poisons their self-confident attitude toward life. And so he thinks that, or so those thinkers think, you know, be healthy-minded, don't think about your death. The other way, he says, is to be morbidly minded. He writes this. I think this is here. Um, it'll be a, a couple quotes down, I think. The fear of death, if it's not there, it's okay. The fear of death is natural and present to everyone. Uh, is natural and is present in everyone. It is the basic fear that influences all others, a fear from which no one is immune, no matter how disguised it may be. Becker sides with this view, not because he thinks it's better, but he, because he thinks it's just the reality that we live it with. The terror of death is the deep motivation that drives people. It's the core of self-preservation. Reality and fear go naturally together because this world is scary and threatening us all the time. One could be forgiven for reading Becker and concluding that Fear is the reason people who are pretty vulnerable compared to other animals exercise dominion over things, that we try to take control of things. We're trying to avoid our death. So, all right, that's kind of what, you know, a summary of what a lot of people say about death. What's the biblical guidance? What do we do? Ecclesiastes encourages us to make peace with our death, 
to acknowledge its inevitability and then keep on living. There's this legend about Martin Luther, this quote may or may not be true to him, but it's a legend about him that captures the, the posture of Ecclesiastes toward death. He's asked, you know, what would you do if you knew you would die tomorrow? And here's what he says. If I knew that tomorrow the world would go to, pe- to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. If I knew that tomorrow would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Um, there's an author and pastor, Zach Eswine, he explains how this posture fits with Ecclesiastes. You know, some people are so overcome by the futility of it all, the, the, the reality of death is too overwhelming to them that they never plant their tree. They never do anything. What does it matter after all? Another type of fool is so resigned to this coming reality that they would just chop down the tree, use the wood to make a fire, cook the apples, and have a party. Like, let's just live it up for one last night. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. Enjoy the heat and the sweat, though you don't know what sort of harvest will come. Luther continues to steward the land. Work for the fruitfulness of creation while the sun is shining. If he knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, today he would still plant his apple tree. This is the teacher's repeated wisdom in the face of death. This is what we do with it. The same wisdom he gives in the face of the enormity of time and the seeming chaos of the world. What do we do with the knowledge of death? We receive life and we enjoy it. That's what he says. The life that you've been given, not the life you wish you had. Receive it and enjoy it. This is the constant refrain of the book of Ecclesiastes. We're living under the sun. We're toiling. We're facing chaos and fear and death every day. But there's a good creator to whom we are connected. And if we would but notice, he is still giving gifts Celebrate the mom that you have. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) So a a bit of context. You know, if you read Ecclesiastes and you remember that Solomon wrote it, you might wonder if all of his stuff about enjoying the life that you've been given could apply to that many people. Solomon, in his life, is the richest human being on earth. He has, you know, hundreds or maybe over a thousand women, you know, wives, concubines, through all these political arrangements. I'm not sure whether that's good or what, but he has that. He has all, you know, he spends his life in peace and, and, and reflecting on the world and navel-gazing and writing Ecclesiastes, right? That's not the life that many of us have been given. So, of course, he thinks the thing to do is to receive life and enjoy it. But what about you? What about me? This is where it's helpful to hear from others. Another Israelite, in fact, millennia later, reflecting on the literal opposite situation. Let's go back to the Nazi concentration camps. I've already mentioned in this series Viktor Frankl. He was a Jew who was in the camps. And he wrote a book afterwards reflecting on that experiment, experience, I'm sorry, Uh, Surely he might have a different perspective than Solomon about, you know, what to do with the days between our birth and death, right? Let's listen to him. 
This is kind of a long quote, but stick with me. I think it'll be here. Every day, every hour offered the opportunity to make a decision, a decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom, which determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance, uh, renouncing freedom and dignity to become molded into the form of the typical inmate. Seen from this point of view, the mental reactions of the inmates of a concentration camp must seem to what must seem more to us than the mere expression of certain physical and sociological conditions. Even though conditions such as lack of sleep, insufficient food, and various mental stresses may suggest that the inmates were bound to react in certain ways, in the final analysis it becomes clear that the sort of person the prisoner became was the result of an inner decision and not the result of camp influences alone. Fundamentally, therefore, any man can, even under such circumstances, decide what shall become of him. I read that and I think, how on earth? How on earth? But Frankel watched people react to these terrible circumstances differently. He answers that those who could endure were not those who were physically strong, but those who had cultivated some mental, emotional, and spiritual depth in their lives. Those who retained an imagination, even in this horrific circumstance. Frankel didn't know whether his wife was still alive in the women's camp. They had been divided at the beginning, and he never saw her again but he tells stories of carrying on long and tender conversations with her in his imagination. One day, just as his crew was being given their pitiful soup, uh, broth, and their stale bread, a fellow prisoner burst into where they were eating and said, friends, come outside and look, the sunset is beautiful. And they went out and that man said, see, there could be beauty in the world. I mean, these cultivating an inner depth, receiving the gifts of life, seizing his God moments. So we receive it, we enjoy it, and we also hold it loosely. If everything, including our life, is in God's hands, then we can be set free from perfectionism. As I was writing this, it brought to mind something I heard from Jason Jans. Jason Jans is the uh, pastor in town. He also founded a ministry called Cross Purpose, which is this remarkable uh, process of bringing people from poverty on the verge of homelessness into really stable situations. It, it, it's a, a really great organization. And he, hearing him speak about this, uh, he gave this wild concept. He said, statistically... If each church in America committed to walk with just one person who is dealing with homelessness all the way out, if each church in America just did this with one person, homelessness would be eradicated in our country. Just one. And yet we get crushed by this idea that we have to help every single person that we see. We get crushed by perfectionism. We, we grip too tight to the ideas and we don't hold on to what is actually in front of us. I can be paralyzed by the scope of the problems out there. 
feeling like the little things are meaningless. I forget to plant my apple tree. What if we simply accepted the lot that was before us, the people that are given to us, and walked with them all the way out? This is receiving life as a gift and holding it loosely, trusting God for the global issues. All right, I want to go back to Ernest Becker one more time. You know, this idea of heroism. What is a hero, after all? Um, Here's what he says. Heroism is first and foremost a reflex of the terror of death. We admire most the courage to face death. We give such valor our highest and most constant adoration. It moves us deeply in our hearts because we have doubts about how brave we ourselves would be. When we see a man bravely facing his own extinction, we rehearse the greatest victory we can imagine. And so the hero has been the center of human honor and acclaim since probably the beginning of human evolution. Becker is the son of Jewish immigrants. He, he, he helped to liberate the Nazi camps. Even in his book, he nods to Christianity. I don't think he believed it, but he nods to it. it he, he recognizes that, that the heart of Christianity is a triumph over death. The great triumph of Easter, he says, is the joyful shout Christ has risen. That's what we're about. He describes Christianity as similar to a lot of other religions. You know, he says it's an attempt to attain an immunity bath from the greatest evil, death and the dread of it. So for him, it's maybe an example of the, you know, religious myth that's grappling with death. But what if the resurrection is true? I mean, that's a concept that he doesn't get it, you know, he doesn't give that credence so far. I haven't finished the book, you know, I'm preaching a half-read book here, but um, sorry. Um, but he doesn't seem to give credence to the possibility that, that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. Solomon doesn't seem to imagine such a possibility in Ecclesiastes. What happens after death is beyond his imagination. But what if it's true? What if the meaning of life hinges on the idea that there really is such a hero as the one Becker describes? And with him, we can weep outside of Lazarus's tomb because death is not the way it's supposed to be. We can acknowledge that it is and that it's painful. And then we have hope of the resurrection. One of the best book titles in history is the complex theological treatise uh, written by a Puritan named John Owen. It's, it's called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Isn't that a great title? The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. He's saying in Christ's death, he took all of our death into himself. He removes the sting of death. This is the redemption that God intended. And of course, Becker is right. We, we see Jesus as the ultimate hero, the one who selflessly faced death in order to save others from it. And the story doesn't stop there. It's not merely the death of Christ that enhances our understanding of Ecclesiastes. It's his resurrection. I mean, there, there's this moment at the end of the book of Romans, this joyful refrain where, where Paul writes, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he may be the Lord of both the dead 
and the living. What's he talking about when he gets into this celebration? You know what he's talking about, you guys? He's not talking about them going off to battle or facing persecution. He is talking about a conflict in the Roman church. He's saying, don't you realize if we understand death and life from Jesus' perspective, the small things stay small. And we can enjoy life as it's given to us. What a gift. You cannot receive and enjoy one another if you forget about death and new life. You can only taste the eternal life offered in Christ by receiving one another as your fellows, redeemed from the grave, as dramatically as you yourself were. Ecclesiastes is right. All of us deserve death. It's the just penalty for a life lived for oneself outside of dependence on God. Death is the very definition of a life lived outside of God. But through Jesus, we have been restored to his loving provision. And not because we ate the right foods or honored, you know, the correct holy day. That's the stuff the Romans were fighting over. Only because Jesus died and rose again. Only because he died and rose again. The shadow of death will shrink under the rising sun. And so, it's Mother's Day, but really what I want to say is Happy Easter, friends. Happy Easter. Jesus is risen. Oh, hey, you did it. That's good. Thanks, Donald. Christ is risen. Yes, that's right. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, Jesus confused his guys when he had a party with them, gathered them around the table, and started describing his death. But this is all of our hope now. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yes. He died, and in his death, he has taken all of the sting of our death into himself. Friends, we can be unlike anyone in history. We can embody the heroic because we have a true hero who's given himself to us. Moms, thanks for the way you do that all the time. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Your mercy endures forever beyond the small span of our life as we know it here. You are bigger and better than all of that. And Lord, you have brought us to yourself that we can taste eternity even now. So I ask, Lord, that as my brothers and sisters come to this table, that they would have an experience of God's eternal, immortal presence with them and in them right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.